the difference between theory and criticism? Like what really is, maybe even using Frankenstein since that's in your text, as an example, what's, you know, different about learning literary theory and then actually applying it to a text like Frankenstein? Yeah, for me, the difference between theory and criticism, and this is not everyone's kind of um, way of making this distinction, but for me, theory is kind of a set of principles or a framework or kind of what you bring to a text. And criticism is kind of how you put those principles and put that framework into action. So how you read a text and the two are very interrelated. Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited. This is another Broadview Press special podcast episode. Um, today, actually, I'm joined with people um, from our community who know her. Jaren Usta is co-hosting with me. Hi, Jaren. Hello, Andrew. It's so nice excited for her to be here. So good. And um, today we're going to be talking all things literary theory and criticism. But please don't stop listening. We're going to break through the wall of literary theory, I promise you, because we are joined by the author of the new second edition of Literary Theory and Criticism, Anne H. Stevens. And I just want to introduce Anne formally before she comes on. So Anne is actually now recently the Dean of the College of Letters and Science at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. She specializes in the 18th century with literature, the history of the novel, literary theory, of course. Um, she's published three books, including the one we're going to talk about. And um, she actually does hail have a New York City connection. She got her master's and doctoral degree from NYU. So. New York is always in the atmosphere here. Um, so Anne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is my first ever time being on a podcast. So it's exciting. Yay. We welcome you. Wonderful. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to give Jaren the first question just because Jaren and I were already, she has the first edition of your book. I have the second in print, even though thank you Broadview for giving us the online edition. Um, and we were just discussing a little of your intro, like how you bring about this discussion of literary theory to break that hesitancy around it. So, you know, yeah. Jaren, yeah. you go for it. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I think, um, as I was saying earlier, uh, in even in your introduction from the very first sentence, there is this um, feeling, this message of, um, making criticism and theory more accessible even to the you know um non-academically uh, oriented you know reader and and just general audience so the way that you approach interpretation criticism as like an everyday activity and the examples that you provide in that very intros you know this is actually something that we do on a daily basis we just when we put it in that you know um capital letter you know theory and criticism it becomes a little bit more scary so i really like that connection you're making between how you know um criticism theory all this is actually something that's based in everyday activities and it's something we are um as social beings that, that we do engage in so um i think then my first question to you would be how um what can we learn from literary and critical theory that um end up being taught at introductory um, courses, whether in like undergrad level or maybe, you know, grad level, but I, I'm thinking mostly undergraduate. Uh, and we talk about, you know, um, Plato, Aristotle, uh, or the Renaissance, early modern period, and uh, the tendency 
for most students this is you know so from so far away like this this was so long ago why do i need to engage with this why do i need to learn this right um so what can we learn from literary and critical theory from such periods that seem so outdated and so far away so disconnected from our current reality to actually apply to our current you know um struggles or you know situations how would you explain that Sure. Um, thank you for that. Um, I will, before answering the question, just give you a little bit of context for the book, um, okay. which is not to be found anywhere in the book, but helps to un helps uh, kind of make sense of like where I was coming from in writing this. Um, mm -hmm. So in 2014, I was um, contacted by an acquisitions editor from John Wiley and Sons. Uh, and it was the series that you probably have heard of, um, the For Dummies books. Uh -huh. Yes. And uh, they wanted to, they had a, a series of dummies books that covered academic topics. Uh -huh. And they wanted to do a literary theory and criticism for dummies. And because I published in this area and because my um, course syllabi were online, they sort of invited me to submit a proposal. Uh, John Wiley and Sons then, um, that portion of the company went bankrupt after oh. I had already um, put together kind of a very detailed proposal and gotten an advance and everything. So then I had this um, project that I had to find a new home for because I didn't want to give it up because I thought it was a really good idea to have a book that was introducing uh, people to this field, which can seem very daunting, uh, but make it as accessible as possible. And there's other titles in that series, like neuroscience for dummies, you know, things that seem really complicated, but like breaking it down very simply. Mm -hmm. So luckily I was able to find a new home for the project with Broadview and um, kind of retooled it, made it a little more academic and a little more kind of designed for a classroom, but very mm -hmm. much the, the kind of spirit of the project from its initial uh, inception was really to make things relevant and accessible. And um, so I do know that there are a lot of um, people who use the book in, um, in undergraduate courses or portions of the book in undergraduate courses in a like an intro to literature course or a, a intro to theory mm -hmm. course. And I've had students tell me that they like that it's really accessible. Um, mm -hmm. But in terms of the early period, the Plato, Aristotle, um, Middle Ages kind of stuff. One of the, um, the reasons that I um, wrote the book the way I did is that's the way I teach. Uh, when I teach the um, intro to theory course uh, at my previous institution, um, mm -hmm. uh, intro to literary theory and criticism, it was required for all English majors. And we use the Norton anthology of theory and criticism. And we began with Plato and Aristotle and Longinus. And so I structured the book sort of the way I teach the class. Um, but one of the things that I always found in teaching that course, which I taught for 17 years, um, now I'm a dean, I don't teach anymore. So I sort of miss it, or at least for now, I don't teach. Um, <laughs> but um, some of the questions that come up in the very early um, days of the course when we're doing the ancient writers are the questions that really um, remain central to literary studies throughout this entire long history. So and that's something I try to emphasize in the book that um, these questions can take new forms, but they really go all the way back. So um, the first day, the first reading that when I taught the course, the first reading we would do was um, selections from Plato's Republic. And Plato is talking about uh, kind of the ethics of representation. And if you mm -hmm. think about debates in literary studies today, they very much still center on the ethics of representation. Yes. You know, what is appropriate to be presented? Can literature, um, you know, shape people's attitudes and behaviors? If you're thinking about, you know, reading um, literature from earlier periods of time that um, invokes uh, sexist or racist uh, stereotypes, um, and you know, instructors grappling with that, you know, should we read these texts from earlier periods that have these really outdated 
attitudes. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there's very much what Plato's talking about. We want to protect people from, you know, bad ideas. And it always, um, Plato, he's very pro-censorship. Um, and yes. uh, it always provoked a really, really um, lively discussion in the class about, mm -hmm. you know, everyone believes in free speech, but then there's limits to free speech. And so some yeah. of those things are very, very relevant, I think, um, going all the way through uh, when talking about Aristotle and Aristotle's poetics also gets into some of the same questions of representation, but also the um, thinking about the relationship of form and content and how uh, stories are structured and how um, for Aristotle um, and for other writers, you know, other ancient theorists like Longinus, um, you know, fiction becomes this really powerful tool for understanding the world, for creating empathy, and for Aristotle, you know, fiction is even superior to nonfiction in terms of thinking about, you know, shaping the world through that act of catharsis and being able to tell um, a story that um, will be powerful and compelling. And again, I think that relates to contemporary discussions about literature. Why is it important? Why is the literature remain a vital subject, you know, how can literature engage people with questions of social justice, with questions of, you know, environmental justice, um, those things, uh, those debates go all the way back to these kind of early theorists. So that's my kind of long-winded answer, of, you know, kind of, um, and also thinking about the way the book was structured. The other books, kind of out there that introduce literary theory um, to a kind of more general or a student um, audience tend to not go all the way back. They tend to mostly just be 20th and 21st century, and they tend to also not be very synthetic. Uh, so they tend to just, you know, here's a school, here's a chapter on deconstruction, here's a chapter on psychoanalysis, here's a chapter on you know, gender, like um, theory. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. So the theory becomes yeah. just a series of isms. Like, are you this or are you that? Which hat are you wearing? Yeah. But the the history is actually much more interrelated. So I tried to, you right. know, I had to do some breaking it down when you get into the 20th century, because otherwise the 20th century, 21st century would be, you know, most of the <laughs> book, a really long chapter. So I said, group things, but I wanted to show, because most people don't, just identify as one thing as a reader or a critic you know you can be a feminist who's also really interested in narrative who's also really interested in ecological issues you know whatever the case may be people don't tend to just use one lens exclusively absolutely amazing. yeah yeah that, that was such a comprehensive and very mm -hmm. you know um comprehensive and concise at the same time I think you like just captured everything like beautifully and yes. <laughs> this, this this connection that you like are pointing out between all these different schools of thoughts and the history and how it's easier to kind of exclude the earlier periods because it is um a lot more tricky to maybe get the contemporary readers attention or students attention to think about those things but the things that we are thinking about and grappling with today are you know, were relevant for for people back then as they are for us in just different forms. So there's this like connection of like humanity has been dealing with these issues for a long time, you know? So yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. And if I may, I just, for everyone out there, I want them to hear just the opening of your intro because I think it's so important. And because like Jaren, you know, brought us there, which is that you really start with the everyday signs in our life. So you know, the first sentence is every day we perform countless acts of reading, writing, interpretation, and end evaluation. We read signs, write emails, interpret others' behavior, evaluate our lunch options, or just click like on a piece of writing or a photo online. So at its most basic level, literary theory provides an opportunity to slow down and to reflect upon these activities. I just love that opening, Anne, because it's like what I've been speaking with Jaren about why I love your book so much is because of what you've described. I love that you outline this history 
of literary theory. Like I, your book wasn't around when I was an undergrad for literary theory. And I really like Charles Bressler's book. That's the one I was assigned on literary theory, but it was more of, you know, I'm going to just like go quickly through the history to get us to the 21st century angles or lenses, lenses. I mean, when I think of literary theory, I can never not remember my undergrad professor, shout out, cause she listens, Jan Balakian. <laughs> um, so Jan would always kind of compare literary theory to when you go for an eye exam and you know that machine where they flip down every lens to see what matches with your prescription. And I always think, oh, that makes sense. Like what is kind of standing out to you when you're reading a book? And that it, but it comes from the primary source first, and then you add in the theory. And um, like, what are you compelled towards? And what I'm really curious is there must be so much that goes through your mind. I think creating a book like this, I would be nervous. Like if you had tasked me <laughs> with creating a literary theory book, I would be like, where do I begin? So can you maybe, I mean, you said you taught the course 17 years. So like, what did you know you needed in the book? And what did you think, okay, this might really um, obscure the message? Um, definitely, um, I think that uh, in terms of what I felt I needed, um, you know, beyond the kind of historical survey, I definitely wanted to include um, that last chapter that walks through a couple examples of how you might apply. Um, and I used just texts that are really, really commonly taught, Hamlet and Frankenstein. So I figured, you know, probably, you know, a lot of people have read those or are familiar with the storylines, at least uh, from the many film adaptations. So I wanted to have some application, but also to make that application more synthetic. Uh, so not just say, you know, here's an example of a, you know, a feminist a text that you could apply a feminist lens to, but kind of say you can apply these lenses, multiple lenses to the same text. So kind of run those examples through a lot of things. Um, in terms of what I didn't feel was, um, would be useful. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of jargon that goes into literary theory, a lot of terminology, and some of that's very much needed. Uh, you need to really um, use precise language uh, if you're understanding um, some of these specialized schools of thought. Um, but I didn't want to get overwhelmed with the jargon. Mm -hmm. So there was a glossary in the back of the book, but I really tried to, um, you know, when I had to use a very specific um, jargony type word, tried to give an equivalent. Um, I mean, it, even in, uh, you know, in writing this book and having been, you know, working in the field of literary theory and, um, you know, having taught it for a long time, like, I don't know if I could have told you before writing this book what phenomenology was exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just one of those words. It's like so abstract. Like, I think I understand it, but wait, do I? Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh no, it's just the study of perception. There you go. And so then I just, you know, that's all phenomenology is, but I don't know why it daunted me for so long. It's like, I don't understand, or like hermeneutics. Like yes. that also just seemed really confusing. It's just interpretation. So where possible, just kind of break things down to like make it a little less. I love this game. We should keep going. I mean, <laughs> well, because another term I think we all hear all the time is epistemology. Yes. Right. It's and knowledge. Study, study of knowledge. knowledge. Yeah. There we go. I wish, but, I wish we had this interview before my comprehensive exam is all I can say right now. We could just be like, <laughs> Jaren would use her list and she'll just throw terms out and be like, oh, that's what it is. It just would have helped with the immense anxiety, you know, you're like, right. Yes. But <laughs> I think this is a good point. As simple as that. Yeah. Like, why do you think that that barrier might exist and is like more in the university? Like, and maybe this is where we're getting to what I love is this is a public humanities podcast that. So many out there who are readers who enter their libraries or bookstores would be curious about that understanding of phenomenology, about perception, right? What it's like to touch a book, what it's like 
to smell a book, like get involved with all their sensory, uh, the sensory emotions. And you, but why do you think that barrier of language, like we start to question, wait, is that what it really means? Well, some of it, um, there's no other word for it. Some of it's just gatekeeping, right? <laughs> you know, just we have to, um, and this is something I talk about a little bit in the book, um, but that uh, I can definitely sort of expand upon. Uh, literary studies prior to the 20th century wasn't an academic discipline. It wasn't something you studied at a university. It was just something people did. They read um, and people did study, you know, wrote literary histories, wrote literary analyses, but it wasn't an academic discipline. But when uh, kind of in the late 19th century, when um, the shape of the modern university kind of coalesced uh, and uh, academic disciplines and scholarly societies um, are formed, there was this real um, immense pressure to uh, to have a kind of level of rigor for these fields. And so actually, and I talk about this a bit in the introduction, one of the things I found really interesting was looking through the back catalog of the journal PMLA, Publications of the Modern Language Association, which is one of the oldest and most established journals in the field of literary studies. And it goes all the way back to the 19th century. And talk about jargony. The articles from the late 19th century are the most jargony things I've ever seen, like much more so than literary studies today. But it was part of that, you know, we're a scientific field. We have to have a scientific you know, we're publishing scientific papers. Um, and so some of that still remains within literary studies because if you don't have that kind of rigor, that gatekeeping, that scientific vocabulary, then it's just book club, right? <laughs> it's just kids talking about books. And then why is it a subject for a university? So I feel like there is enough complexity within literary studies without all of the jargon. That is, there's still just the richness of literary expression and language and the many, many ways to interpret the world and all of the things that go into that without it having to be uh, kind of have this quasi-scientific vocabulary um, kind of foregrounded yeah. to that extent. But I think that's part of the part of the reason. I think also the close relationship of literary theory and philosophy, a discipline that is not known for its um, entry level, kind of, you know, accessibility for the entry level reader. And a lot of um, particularly the um, the French and German theorists who shaped uh, literary theory in the 60s and 70s, they were trained philosophers. Uh, so terms like hermeneutics and phenomenology, they come out of German and French philosophical traditions. Um, so the thing that's interesting about literary studies is that brings together so many different fields. You have this continental philosophy tradition, but you also have kind of, you know, the, the tradition of, of book reviewing and uh, things that are not tied to the academy, and it kind of brings those together. So again, another long, long-ish answer. No, I am just so, I'm so happy for your college, like, just to be <laughs> frank with you, to like have that, I mean, to have that perspective and to talk about gatekeeping in that way and to think of language. I mean, I can tell how passionate you are in just literacy. And that means so much for you to be the Dean. So I just want to thank <laughs> your, that, your university for hiring you. So well, hopefully the college feels the same way. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I think this really brings me to the next question that I want to ask you, because now we're starting to talk about university and um, literary studies um, as a field emerging in this new institution in the 19th century. And, you know, it the, the history that you gave us makes so much sense because we're talking about this, like the Enlightenment period, right? Everything is like there's a specific fields are there everything like is you know understood as like it can be studied it can be explained everything like specialization um is becoming more institutionalized um but a lot has actually 
um, changed since then. <laughs> Some things haven't, but you know, a lot it's has. <laughs> <laughs> so um, as a field, as a literary field, uh, in, like humanities courses, literature courses, um, the university in our, um, in, in, you know, contemporary um, period, what do you think, uh, is the, the role that's um, going to be assigned to such courses or such fields, or not role maybe, but the place that they're going to have going forward with the, um, the struggles that we are, we have been seeing for some time now, but maybe they've become a lot more apparent since COVID when it comes to, you know, the institutional difficulties. What, what kind of place will be open for such, you know, um, studies and fields and discussions and, and um, in, as we move forward? What do you make of that? So is your question uh, future of literary studies? Yes. <laughs> Just an easy, simple question. Yes. Okay, hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is so happy to welcome Broadview Press as our official sponsor. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly in English studies, writing, philosophy, and history. They always publish with an eye towards diversity, so there is a strong list of titles from women, people of color, and other authors from marginalized groups. In the summer of 2022, they launched their new Broadview Anthology of American Literature, which increases diversity in the classroom because it rethinks the American canon and breathes new life into the American Literary Survey. It's actually been called, quote, the new gold standard in the field. I love using Broadview Press text in my own classroom at Stony Brook University. I can't wait to use the new anthology of American literature when I have the opportunity. And for all of you out there, Broadview Press has given us the official code, Ivory Tower, for 20% off site-wide on broadviewpress.com. Again, that is code Ivory Tower for 20% off. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, definitely a few things that I've seen um, that I think are positive. I mean, on the um, on the kind of um, the the larger picture of kind of the traditional liberal arts fields, um, they are declining. Um, you know, the the history major is declining. English number of English majors are declining. Um, that's just a national trend. I don't think that's likely to to change anytime soon. Students, um, because of the cost of higher education, um, there's a lot more focus on degrees that have a really clear um, career pathway at the end. Um, so you'll see you'll still see plenty of people going into English who plan to do um, secondary education. For example, you know, they want to teach English, so you study English or secondary education with a English emphasis. But um, the kind of pure um, liberal arts fields, like philosophy, like all of these areas, they're just um, on the decline, particularly at public institutions um, that serve, you know, first generation um, students like my uh, current institution and my previous institution was a minority serving institution. And it's hard to, um, you know, if, if families are paying out of pocket for degrees, they want their, um, their students to major in something like nursing or engineering or business where it's like very clear 
that there's a job at the end of it. Um, and that's a shame because then these fields like English and history and philosophy really become kind of the domain of the highly privileged, of people who aren't as concerned with you know, getting a career at the end of it, who can, you know, who go to small selective liberal arts colleges or Ivy League schools and who have that ability to just, you know, follow their passions rather than being concerned about um, job readiness. So one of the things that um, that I think um, is helpful for literary studies is for, you know, without losing the focus on language and interpretation to really think about um, areas where, um, where courses and programs can be offered that um, provide students with a, a stronger sense of what they can do with the degree when uh, they're on the other side. So professional writing is an area that's really been a growth area for, um, for English programs and technical writing. But you can also imagine other types of things um, like a lot of English majors go on to library work or publishing. So kind of building that into the curriculum a little bit more so the students mm -hmm. know uh, kind of, you know, getting some of that hands-on experience, you know, working in, uh, you know, a library um, while taking classes or other types of things like that. Um, I also think a lot of um, what's exciting in literary studies right now is uh, the growth of interdisciplinarity with uh, cross-listed courses. A lot of the, um, the most popular uh, literature courses um, that I've seen at various institutions are the ones that are cross-listed with, say, an ethnic studies program or a gender studies program where you're studying um, these issues in relation to, um, you know, literature. Uh, so rather than just a straight, you know, gender studies course, you know, using literature as a lens to understand gender and sexuality or to understand, you know, the African-American experience. Um, I think that's an area where there's a lot of growth. I think, um, you know, literature and writing uh, are so intertwined and writing is never going to stop being an important part of uh, college curriculum. So English departments are never going away, but I think for English departments to really think about kind of how to reframe their curriculum so that it's more interdisciplinary, so that it's more responsive to um, you know, kind of career pressures that students are facing, uh, that it's more um, kind of focused on writing skills and different types of different modalities of writing, uh, you know, writing for the web, writing for, you know, in other types of contexts um, that will help English departments to, to survive. I mean, some of my most beloved classes that I've taught over the years, uh, like one time because of a faculty need is not my area of expertise at all, but I taught a whole semester course on Milton uh, where we spent, you know, seven, eight weeks reading Paradise Lost. I don't think I'll ever teach that course again. <laughs> like those kind of courses are probably never going to be, you know, the same as they once were back in the sixties. Um, but I'll still always find a way to teach some Milton in some other class, whether it's, you know, mm -hmm. talking about uh, kind of literature and revolution or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, I think we just have to think about kind of what it is that literary studies can bring to the modern student. And it's not necessarily what it was. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think your take is really interesting in terms of like focusing more on the curriculum and how to maybe introduce more practical skills into it alongside like literature. And I know you focused a bit on writing and this is, you know, I do think this is a trend that we are seeing. In terms of other um, examples of, you know, practicality you talked about like internships maybe, you know, with library yes. studies and things like that. Are you seeing also examples of such changes or do you think, um, um, that will take more time. Um, no, yeah. I think that's definitely um, a big area of opportunity. And um, at my um, my last job, uh, I was the undergrad advisor for the English department, um, and I would get contacted all the time by 
um, businesses uh, who were looking for English majors because they just needed people who could write. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a really rare skill, Um, you know, like being able to be a clear and effective communicator. Uh, So we would place students in internships and in jobs doing grant writing, doing, you know, web copy, you know, public relations. Uh, You don't have to major in public relations to work in public relations. You have to have, you know, good communication skills and, you know, good understanding of what a client might need. Um, So I feel like, um, you know, there is a lot of opportunity for that, uh, for that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we're doing right now is a public relations (laughs) entertainment organization. And what's been exciting is that. um, Oh, sorry, my light went out. (laughs) No, you're fine. Jaren saw it firsthand, which is we have now interns from Stony Brook University who have worked for the podcast, but I've also connected with other podcasts and media companies who need interns. And what better person to know messaging and the creative arts than an English major and right. Thinking outside of that box is so exciting. Um, And I think like Jaron said, it's wonderful to actually like now have the need for interns. Cause I think I've seen with English departments, like there was never really that same emphasis on internships because there wasn't as many who were in the faculty who had outside experience. And I think what's great is now, oh, we might need, you know, faculty who have come from different industries, who are in entertainment, who were in public relations, who can, you know, show that expertise in the curriculum. So it's exciting to hear you see that integration happening. Um, Yeah, it's definitely, um, I definitely see the way it's expanding. I, um. I'm excited about that. Yeah, and definitely, you know, I graduated from college in the previous century. um, And uh, the college that I went to, uh, University of Chicago, which is a great school, does not care at all. It's probably changed now, but at the time, they did not care about training people for jobs at all. So I did English major. I don't know if we even had a career office. There was never any talk about like, what are you going to do with this degree? And I ended up kind of graduating, never having put together, you know, a resume or a, like a job application for anything more than, you know, working in a restaurant and, you know, and it was really hard. Um, so the more that that can kind of be built into like a capstone course or other types of courses thinking about, you know, how can you take the skills that you're learning as an English major and use those to work in corporate communications, to work as a freelance writer, to, you know, to that kind of thing. It's going to just help the students really understand the value of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And I just came back from a queer history conference and what is so exciting is how much at Stony Brook and public universities, but mostly those, like you said, who have education programs. Um, As PhD students and part of the experience, we get to teach our own courses and build curriculum. And I was surprised how many PhD students still don't teach their own course. And I was concerned for them just because it's such an excellent resume um, builder and a way to communicate what you do. But yeah, I hope universities start, you know, I'm glad that you're talking about that need for professionalization within, um, you know, the English curriculum. And also why I think everyone who's in a PhD program should have to take a pedagogy course because we learn so much. Right. And like, that kind of takes me to my question, which is, um, I went to a university called Kane in North Jersey for my undergrad, and I was one of the few pure English majors. Um, I was around English ed majors because that is the largest, like, actually, it's the largest education granting university in New Jersey. So 
I'm wearing my Call Me Ishmael shirt on purpose. Jared knows I love Mark. I love tying in my fashion, but um, we read Moby Dick and that's how I actually ended my capstone is we went through all the schools of uh, theory um, and applied it to our own criticism of Moby Dick. Like, what's it like from a Marxist view, uh, environmentalist, feminist, queer, psychoanalytic? And it was great to be around education majors because I realized, wait, this is how they're going to be shaping their high school students. This is mm -hmm. ways they can think of it in accessible ways that like we were always trying to break down the jargon because they, the instructor knew that they would be talking to high schoolers. So, you know, cause I feel like it could also go in this other way where you start to almost isolate yourself off in the ivory tower. Like, oh, let's just keep talking in jargon. But um, what I'm curious about is, you know, you talk about Frankenstein and using that as a text to apply different lenses. Um, and I don't even know if we've talked about what you lay out so well, which is the difference between theory and criticism. Like what really is maybe even using Frankenstein, since that's in your text, as an example, what's, you know, different about learning literary theory and then actually applying it to a text like Frankenstein? Yeah, for me, the difference between theory and criticism, and this is not everyone's kind of um, way of making this distinction, but for me, theory is kind of a set of principles or a framework or kind of what you bring to a text. And criticism is kind of how you put those principles and put that framework into action. So how you read a text and the two are very interrelated, right? So if you come to Frankenstein with a background in queer theory um, and you read that text, you're going to notice the homosociality like very strongly, the, the kind of as, Eve Sedgwick has, you know, has laid out, you know, you see these homosocial, homosocial uh, dynamics playing out with, um, with Victor and his, his best BFF, Henry Clairvall, or with Victor and the monster. Uh, and um, so the queer theory would be like your Sedgwick or Foucault or Munoz or, you know, whoever else that you're bringing to the text. And then criticism was how you kind of apply that, how you read the text um, through that specific thing. So to my mind, they're really not um, that different. And I try to say that in the book that um, there is a type of scholar, not so much today, but maybe a generation ago, who was very opposed to theory and that say, you know, I don't do theory. Oh. I just read books. You know, I just, I just interpret literature. But to me, that it's itself a theoretical framework. If you're saying, you know, gender is not important, uh, you know, race is not important, politics is not important. All we care about is, you know, the language of the text and the themes. That's formalism. That's a type of theory. Um, so I don't make a strong distinction. Um, but other people, I guess, would say that the difference between theory and criticism is that things that fall within literary theory really foreground some of those um, a kind of methodological or um, conceptual ideas where an act of criticism, um, the methodological stuff sort of recedes into the background. And so it's much more, you know, how do you interpret this text? What's the theme? What's the conflict? But as I say, that that is itself a type of theory. Um, yeah. So would it be like, just, you know, for us all to kind of like see this in a tangible way, would it be like picking up the communist manifesto is the theory, right? Like that's a theoretical text and dissecting that and then being like, huh, I wonder what the masses and, you know, what is the bourgeois class? What does that look like in a Frankenstein? And what, who's more representative of the proletariat, like the working class? Is that, that yeah. would be the criticism is your own interpretation of that. 
Right. So Marxism, uh-huh. Marxist theory can provide that framework of saying, you know, one of the central structuring or the central structuring feature of human life is, you know, the economic underpinnings of society and class tension. And then you get into more specific um, terminology about bourgeois and proletariat or about, you know, history moving as a dialectic. And then you take something like Frankenstein. And maybe you say the creature is the proletariat who is created out of the, um, you know, Victor owns the means of production. He has uh, created this, um, this entity and um, sees it as his, his servant in service of, you know, Victor is capital. And yeah. then, you know, the creature and exploits back. the monster. <laughs> Yeah, and it comes back but to see, there we go. I love yeah. that. But like, see, that's what's so fun to me is just playing around, like having students or a reader know that, right? We could just even take, you know, because I know Jaren, we were talking about Marx's theory and she had some like questions about adding this, but I'm even just curious, like, I don't know, some really popular text right now, like. Bridgerton, for example, people are really excited to like look over all of the romance books, but like some might be like, well, wait, why would I need to like, like, I wouldn't be using theory when I'm reading Bridgerton, but like, what's something and that not to put you on the spot with Bridgerton, but like, (laughs) I will, no, no, but like, even with right gender relations, like when we're watching Bridgerton or reading it, it's so interesting because I mean, it has that Regency era, but then it brings in our 21st century ethics and race representation. And it's kind of a hybrid show. So in a way, I don't know, I would see there's so much there that people talk about. Like, I think, right, we all talk about theoretical issues without actually using, like always referring to it. Like, oh, it comes from that moment in so-and-so theorist vocabulary, you know, it's just part of our conversation. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And definitely um, the thing I was going to say about kind of um, theory and like doing a theoretical reading, I mean, one of the pushbacks that um, people will give is like, um, well, that's, that's not right. Like, you know, Mary Shelley couldn't have been, you know, saying this is a Marxist um, Uh, critique because Marx hadn't even written yet, right? And so it's ahistorical to say so, but it's interesting. And like, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, we're discerning what was the true meaning of the text? What did the author intend? Because that's really boring and that's very limiting to just say. So Bridgerton is a great example of that. I am somebody who works on Regency era fiction and um, I've not read the Bridgerton books but I have watched the Netflix show. And um, I know a certain type of historical purist would say, well, this is obviously anachronistic, even, you know, the clothing that they're wearing is so, the colors are so over the top, like nobody would dress like that, you know, but it's, um, it's saying something for our time. And so that's um, actually really uh, valuable. And uh, one of the things I found interesting about Bridgerton is that, um, and I don't know anything about the author or the books, um, but there's a very, um, very narrow, what I call micro genre, a very specific type of novel that flourished from about 1808 to 1820 in England um, that I call season novels. Um, And they follow one season of the sort of fashionable calendar and the whole novel is about going to parties and gossiping and what's everybody wearing and what sort of scandals and they're full of divorce and people running off and there's always scenes where they go to a party and somebody is new to the to the you know social scene and somebody else is very knowledgeable and they're like oh so and so well that person cheated on their wife and that person you know is having an affair with his servant and you know this and that um and Bridgerton like follows this formula really 
accurately. And it's like, how did that, did, was that author reading these really obscure <laughs> texts from the 18 teens? Or is this just happened to be that they, it follows it so closely? <laughs> I don't well, know. And that's something that, right, a critic would ask. That's the question. That's your starting point. And also, anyone who makes fun of me for watching The Housewives, here's a reason. <laughs> right. Cause it's about gossip and it's the stakes are so low, right? Like one sentence you said, and that like lasting a whole soap opera reality TV season, like why did so-and-so say that? What was their intentionality? What's the meaning? And I always love it because it actually helps with conflict resolution, but we could go on a long, Jerry knows I'm like obsessed with the housewives. <laughs> okay. But I know Jaren yeah, is like I mean, ready. She's ready. I've only seen Salt Lake, okay. um, but Salt Lake was very full of uh yeah a lot to unpack Drama. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but drama. I think there is like this you know I always think there's this connection between you know go gossip and and literature narrative that like dissecting mm -hmm. and who said what she said this and what happened so um it makes so much sense uh just in, in a different form maybe when we watch it in like the housewives but because we talked about Marx's theory, I would like to ask my next question about the different editions of mm -hmm. your book. Um, uh, you've added um, a couple of chapters for the second edition where you included Marxist theory, environmental studies, disability um, studies, which um, if I'm correct, they were not part of the first edition. I only have the second edition, so yeah. Right, here's you, the first. You are not correct. Um, I am not correct. It's misleading language on the part of the Broadview marketing team. Um, there's expanded um, coverage of disability studies uh, and oh. environmental studies. Um, in the first edition, disability and environmental studies, I just touched on very briefly and in the same section. Uh, and mm -hmm. there was feedback from people who'd used the textbook saying that they wanted um, a little more thorough coverage. And that was something I knew that I wanted to expand. The Marxist section, I didn't really change that much. And so um, mm -hmm. there's maybe a little bit added there. Some of the mm -hmm. other things that I added to the second edition were mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. that were um, either because like the field had changed and I knew I needed to add stuff or because mm -hmm. of reader response. Um, so the other things I added a section on critical race theory, which um, after I had submitted the manuscript suddenly became in the headlines. And, I, you know, so it was, the book was submitted before that became like a campaign slogan. Um, but I felt, yeah. um, you know, that was uh, a good addition because all of a sudden this phrase that was a pretty obscure field of legal study became kind of part of the national conversation. Mm. Uh, I added affect theory, which I hadn't talked about at all in the first edition. And that was something I knew was kind of um, an emerging field when mm -hmm. I wrote the first edition. But um, I, by the time I got around to revising it, I really knew I needed to add affect theory. I added a section on indigenous studies um, mm -hmm. as, you know, a separate and distinct field. Um, not just kind of lumping it in with other ethnic and post-colonial studies um, right. because there's a specificity to it. And all these things are pretty short mm -hmm. sections, but they just um, add a little bit more. Um, and then there's other revisions that I made throughout. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, this is good to lay out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yes, it is, like I said, because I only have the second edition and reading um, the uh, description of the book for this for the second edition, it does. It did seem like you know these chapters did not exist in the first one. So uh, I was curious about you know what um, informed the decision to include those chapters. What is was it reader response as you said? Um, uh, was it um, uh, I don't know what's needed in in the field. What's emerging in the field currently? So, but that that covers all of it. Thank you. Yeah, and and for the Marxist section, the thing that changed is that um, I moved the discussion of Karl Marx mm. from the beginning of the chapter on politics into the chapter on the 19th century. Mm. Because, you know, previously had included um, Marx at the start of the politics chapter because Marxist, um, that Marxist framework is so important for a lot of different political approaches. But when I was doing the second edition, the politics chapter got so big 
because of kind of the expanded nature of, you know, adding critical race theory, adding right. more on eco-criticism and disability studies that I just moved Marx back to um, the 19th century. I see. Yeah. Um, well, okay, then I will just ask my last question. <laughs> Do you have a favorite school of thought, <laughs> literary theory yeah. framework? If so, what is it? <laughs> yeah. I mean... I have some things that I'm more strongly drawn to in terms of teaching and in terms of my own um, kind of intellectual uh, interests. And then there's also the particular type of scholarship that I produce. Uh, mm. And those things are related, but a little bit different. Um, in terms of the theory that I love, that would be definitely the more the political stuff, the Marxist theory, uh, Foucault. I had a whole class on Foucault as an undergrad, and uh, that you know Foucault has just been my my guy. You know, I just really <laughs> like it. You know, I've never yeah. been able to sell students fully. Like I taught the full archaeology of knowledge uh, once to a class, and they were not as into it as I was. But history I of sexuality. I find that very interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of my own um, scholarship, I tend to be more of a sociological uh, and a book historian. So um, Pierre Bourdieu uh, is a big, um, a big uh, kind of touchstone uh, and sociological approaches to literature definitely tie into kind of political and, you know, Marxist. Right things but um so mm -hmm. the project that i'm working on now takes me away from the 18th century uh i'm looking at um a group of novels um published from the 1950s to the early 1980s that are kind of popular espionage fiction mm -hmm. that Ooh. depicts a critical uh view of u.s intelligence agencies so there's a bunch wow. of written by people who've left, you know, the CIA or other intelligence who are kind of um, whistleblowers or depicting sort of the nefarious activities that the uh, CIA was involved in, um, in those years. And so that's really a departure for me in terms of the um, time period, but it's very much in keeping with my interest in kind of, um, popular publishing practices and looking at uh, kind of the relationship between novels and um, and the real world. My um, dissertation was on historical fiction and looking at the way that, um, that uh, novelists developed this framework for, you know, using fiction as a way to reflect on historical events. And that's the same thing that these CIA writers are doing. Like, mm -hmm. let's just call it a novel and then depict all this bad stuff mm -hmm. that the yeah. CIA is doing. Yeah. That's well, so interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, Jaron asked the last question, but Jaron doesn't even know this is about to happen. Uh -oh. But, Anne, if you will indulge me, I'd like to play a little theory game with you. Okay. Because <laughs> it seems like you are really open to kind of throwing it at the wall. So, because <laughs> yeah. it's- My teaching Judy, style. Yes. Yes. Because it was Judy Garland's 100th birthday and- Again, speaking back to my undergrad professor, Jan Balakian, when we learned all, I took the theory course with her, she assigned us the Wizard of Oz and approaching all different theory lenses to the Wizard of Oz. So I thought, why not just play that as our final game, which <laughs> is I'm going to mention a theory and I'm curious how you would use that as a lens to the Wizard of Oz. Ooh. Are you ready? Um. Yeah, it sounds difficult. I know, this is the most <laughs> organic everyone out there. This is not planned, okay? <laughs> I but, had no idea no, about this. Jaren didn't have any idea, but I think <laughs> I think we're all ready. Um, okay. So if we were going to apply, say, a feminist lens to The Wizard of Oz, where would you take that? Hmm. I mean, it's there's a very gendered division of labor uh, there that Dorothy is kind of the the ingenue the the female protagonist but then all of her like companions on the road are gendered male right even though you know I don't know if 
it's a tin man, you know, it's not a real gender, right? But, uh, he's a tin man and the, the lion and the scarecrow shouldn't be gendered, but um, in this framework they are. And then all of the villains are female um, that kind of, you know, the witches, I mean, there's some good witches too, uh, there's, but the the main antagonist is female. So I think you could do a, a reading looking at kind of the, the gendered division of labor. Yeah, um, no, this is good. Now, how about a psychoanalytic reading? Ooh, you probably focus on the uh, the wizard there, right? Projection and kind of, um, uh, you know, overcompensation, maybe. Um, maybe has a kind of feelings of insecurity that are masked by that. Uh, but you could also definitely go into kind of questions of the id and um, kind of uh, the, um, you know, maybe the flying monkeys are the, you know, the kind of unconscious desires <laughs> kind of coming to the surface. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know Jaren got it out of you that Marxism is, and political theory is one of your wheelhouses wheelhouse to delve into so i don't know marxist theory in the wizard of oz i mean there it's i mean there you might do a historical kind of reading because that the source text the bomb novel is an allegory for the gold standard right and you know follow the yellow brick road is kind of stay on the gold standard so then maybe a marxist reading could look at that economic framework um you know and how that had shifted at the time that the film adaptation is done uh, in terms of thinking about, uh, you know, debates about the gold standard were not central to 1930s economic thinking, but the depression uh, had just ended and kind of thinking about what economic forces are kind of central to thinking about the, the text. I would also, you know, as a sociological kind of Marxist uh, theorist. Um, one of the things I'm most interested in is stuff kind of beyond the frame, the fictional frame. So looking at kind of, um, you know, how was this film marketed? How, you know, what was its impact in terms of, you know, cinematic history? And, um, you know, why was it the most successful film, you know, of its time and you know why was it such a big um because it's a really weird movie yeah I mean, well and i think <laughs> and that was incredible i mean but see <laughs> my whole point is i love we could play these games all day but we're not gonna hold you <laughs> to midnight but i think right this is kind of like a literary parlor game just yeah pick a movie pick a text that a lot of people know and just right see like the different lenses but this is why i want everyone and you know jaren can hold up the second edition but <laughs> please please get literary theory and criticism by ann h stevens published by broadview press it is like we've demonstrated and and you got us to so many different points which is it's great for instructors it's great for undergrad grad students the public to just we're using theory all the time without us even, you know, being conscious of what we're doing. So I love that it's you start to break down that process for us in such an accessible way. So I know I'm going to have this on my bedside table and well, at my office, but, you know, <laughs> my bedside office table. Um, so it's a wonderful text to constantly refer to. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ann Stevens. For thank an excellent you. interview. Thank you both so much. You're a great podcast host. And this was really, really fun. It Wonderful. was it was really fun. Yes. Very fun. Um, very fun. You make it even more accessible through your explanations. And it was a pleasure listening to you. Thank you. Yes, thank yes. You. And all instructors, <laughs> educators, students, just lovers of literature out there, because I'm I know you're all out there. Um, <laughs> this is definitely such a great entryway into literary theory so you know start here it. and then go to the book okay. <laughs> thank you so much bye everyone out there bye, bye Anne. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to the fall season. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is a public humanities podcast where we interview writers, scholars, performers, and artists. Episodes air on Mondays. I am Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I'm so happy to welcome my team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, Kimberly Dallas, our editor, and an amazing fall group of interns. Thank you to this team. Please follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Easy to remember. Our Twitter is at Ivory Boiler Room. And we have a whole new design for our Patreon. It is called the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe because you're joining us and eavesdropping on our conversations that are unedited videos of all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes as if you're eavesdropping in a cafe overhearing the conversation. Well, talking about overhearing a conversation, hi, Mary. Hello, Andrew, and hello, everyone. I'm Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime and Academia, a podcast, well, a true crime podcast that is focused mainly on the crimes committed by and to those in the field of academia. Episodes air every Tuesday at noon. You can follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia and on Twitter at TC in Academia because Twitter hates extra characters, as we all know. And as Andrew alluded to earlier, we have a Patreon and True Crime and Academia has exclusive bonus episodes for subscribers. As a true crime enthusiast, I don't necessarily like to pigeonhole my true crime interests. So over on the Patreon, I cover some of the more high profile cases not related to academia, such as the murder of John Benet Ramsey and the case of Casey Anthony. So if you want access to videos like that, go over to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber. Thank you all for joining us. And here's to an amazing fall season. Bye, Bye everyone.